Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into April's top 10 new movies in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? April was a big one. I saw about 239 film, different films in the span of the month. That's like, I don't know, more than seven a day, almost eight a day. Yeah, one off eight a day, actually. Damn, I was really close. Uh, yeah, the it was an old month, too. Uh, the average release year of all the films I saw in April is 1965. Uh, and that's including, you know, the dozen or t- the 20 to 30 movies that came out this year that I saw in um, April. So, yeah, I was a lot of old movies this month, a lot of them. Uh, it wasn't a great month overall, I, I would say. Um, the average rating was 46, so that's less than 50, which isn't great. But um, the top end is pretty strong. And does feature a new film to enter my top 300, which is always awesome. And i always pleased when that happens. So, yeah. Uh, a lot of stuff to talk about and 10 big movies to go into. So let's, let's just jump right into it, shall we? Countdown. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, oh no! Coming in at number 10, we have a film... Uh, that I saw on April 3rd of the month. Uh, It's a short animated film, only seven minutes long. It's from 1946, and I gave it a score of 80. So everything is at least an 80 in this month's top 10. Uh, My summary, a mouse gets in the way of Bugs' performance. Bugs Bunny is the reference there. And the film is Rhapsody Rabbit. Rhapsody Rabbit, directed by Fritz Freling, starring uh, the voice talents of Mel Blanc, is basically a bug trying to play the piano, and uh, there's just this little mouse guy who keeps getting in his way. And I've seen a lot of these Bugs, Bunny, Looney Tunes comic, uh, uh, short comedies and short animated films in the last month or two, and... This is one of the better ones. This is a really, really great one. In my opinion, it's hilarious. Uh, There's a moment where, like, presumably Bugs Bunny kills somebody. Like, it happens off screen, but I'm pretty sure he kills somebody uh, in this short. And that I just, some part of it is just so fascinating. A lot of the, just the way they decided to animate the piano in some of the sequences and how it connects with the music and, and, you know, Mel Blanc's amazing voice talents. All of it kind of works really, really well in this. And uh, it's on YouTube, I'm pretty sure, or like video, uh, daily video motion things. Or I don't know, some free video site online. You can probably find Rhapsody Rabbit. Uh, it's hilarious. It's very funny, and it's very short. And it's really good. It's really, really good. Uh, it's, like I said, I gave it an 80 out of 100, which is 4 out of 5 stars on Letterboxd, 
and uh, it is the highest rated short I saw this month. New short that I saw this month. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and that's about it. It's a short film. This is a short review for it. So, Rhapsody Rabbit, number 10. Uh, number 9, moving on. Number 9. Uh, I saw this one April 2nd. It is a 92-minute film from 1999 that I also gave an 80. Uh, it wins the tiebreaker for Rotten Tomato score with having one. Uh, its Rotten Tomato score is only 44, though. So uh, it's it's not as widely beloved, maybe, as I enjoyed it. Uh, my summary, a mockumentary of a local beauty pageant. And the film is Drop Dead Gorgeous, directed by Michael Patrick Yan, starring the talents of Kristen, Kirsten, Stu, Kirsten Dunst, Ellen Barkin, Denise Richards, Amy Adams, Kirstie Alley, Allison Janney, Brittany Murphy, Sam McMurray, Mindy Sterling, uh, Will Sasso, Michael McShane, Nora Dunn, Adam West, Thomas Lennon, uh, Amanda Detmer, a lot of people, a lot of big cast, late 90s movie uh, that, you know, has a lot in common with some of the best uh, Christopher Guest movies, and in my opinion, is better than a lot of them as well. You know, it's it's a very, it seems to be very straightforward, and then things just start to happen that are unexplainable, and, or not even unexplainable, but just like the most ridiculous coincidences and, and, and sort of karma-y type things that could possibly happen. I laughed most of the way through this. I think it's really funny. It, it, it's very clever in a lot of ways. And, you know, young Amy Adams is great in this. Uh, there's, there's explosions. And as the title says, people die kind of left and right even. You know, people get burned alive. It, it's, it's really over the top. But it's, it's done and, and held in a restrictive way that really prevents it from ever feeling like too much. Um, my biggest gripe, if there is one, with the film is kind of the way that the movie ends. It doesn't exactly... It kind of peters out instead of ending with a bang, in my opinion. Uh, we seem to keep like pushing past where a movie, the movie should have ended already. But uh, that isn't the worst thing in the world, I guess. It, it's not awful for that reason. It, it doesn't... I wouldn't say it negatively impacts the rest of the film. It just kind of feels like an ending that got tacked on. And I don't know why they felt the need to do that. Uh, I felt like the film pretty much wraps itself up like 80 minutes in, 80, 85 minutes in. So that is kind of my biggest negative point about it. But even even that, it, it's still like not a terrible addendum. It's a decent addendum. It, it's, it's worth... I mean, it's worth seeing and, and continuing on and, and watching through. But Drop Dead Gorgeous, I really enjoyed it. I think, um, I mean, it probably makes my top 10 mockumentary-style films. I don't know if it makes it into top 5. 80 is good, but not the be not amazing. So that one I, I'm not 100% sure on, but I really liked it. I've been trying to watch it for, for a while, actually. And I kept finding the other, like, there's other movies called Drop Dead Gorgeous that I kept finding instead, 
there was one that came out in 2015, one that came out in 91, one that came out in 2010. So it took me a while to get, actually get a hold of the 99 version of the film. Not that any of the other movies are close to the same type of movie, but that's uh, number nine in um, April is Drop Dead Gorgeous. Number eight, it would not be a top ten new movies list without an appearance from Kurosawa. So this Kurosawa film I saw April 2nd, 2018, same day as Drop Dead Gorgeous. It's one hour and it's two hours and two minutes long, 122 minutes. It's from 1949 with a summary of a homicide detective's pistol is stolen. It is also rated an 80, but has a much better tomato score with 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. And that is Stray Dog. Uh, Stray Dog, directed by Kurosawa and starring Toshiro Mifune, Takashi Shimura, uh, Keiko Awaji, Aiko Miyoshi, Noriko Senguku, and many others. Uh, it's 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 this it's a really really good Kurosawa film. It's um, I'm not sure. I think it's like number five or six for me on his on his list. Now that I've seen how many, where are you? Kurosawa. I've seen 10 films from Kurosawa now, and Stray Dog is number 6, so it comes in behind Ran, but ahead of Seven Samurai for me. For me. I, I know, Seven Samurai is really low. Uh, it's it's a fascinating look. You know, I love seeing a young Toshiro Mifune. It's so strange still to like think of him as not a Ronin or like a samurai type figure. You know, seeing him dressed up in, like, relatively contemporary clothes is is strange. But I liked it. I think he, he you know, he's, he's a very talented actor, and this kind of reinforces the fact that he's not just, you know, a, a samurai. You know, he's not just a ronin. He can play other roles, and sort of the, the hook of the film, he is a new detective on the police force. His pistol is stolen while he's on a bus uh, in the late 40s late 1940s, and the film essentially chronicles his attempts to track down uh, the gun and figure out what happened, because it's kind of a big deal. Uh, And um, as the movie progresses, you know, somebody uses the gun uh, in, in a, like, a holdup to kill somebody else, and so it just kind of adds pressure and adds pressure and adds pressure to finding it. Uh, the the biggest thing though that I really liked, I think the plot the plot is fairly straightforward. Um, but other than that, you know, the sort of inner character study of Mifune's character and his character is um, Detective Murakami. The, there's a fantastic like extended scene where he's just kind of slovenly like thinking about what just happened. And and there's there's other reasons for why he's in that situation. Um, but, like, it's just a really, you know, five to ten minute sequence where he kind of, there's, like, no dialogue. He's just kind of wallowing in his own self-pity. And, you know, that doesn't sound or seem like it should be something that is worth watching or, or is, is fascinating or you know, worth keeping your eyes on, you know, something like, oh, I'll just look away, I don't need to pay attention to this. 
this is, you know, that's when you check your email sort of thing. But it's not, you know, it's, it's, you know, Kurosawa shoots that scene, scenes incredibly well. Mifune is an incredibly engaging actor, whether or not he's talking, whether or not he's, like, moving at some point. Uh, it, it just... He's. It just. It shows off all these different sides of Kurosawa. You know, it's a very quiet and solemn moment, and you don't get a ton of those in some of his other films. I feel like you know, with Yoshi, uh, Roshan, um, Yojimbo, like Rashomon, um, and uh, the other one I was trying to think of, Sanjuru. Like a lot of those don't really have some downtime in them. At least, definitely not to the extent that that Stray Dog does. It's it's very subdued of a moment, and it, it you know Kurosawa can do that too. You know, obviously he's he's one of the most talented directors going, and um, Stray Dog is just another notch in that belt. So I was a big fan of Stray Dog, uh, and. You know, it's kind of kind of a thing. You know, until I run out of Kurosawa films, I feel like there's a good chance I'm going to try and put one on every single one of these lists uh, as far as long as I can. So number eight this month uh, is Kurosawa's Stray Dog with an 80. Moving on to number seven. Uh, the other thing this list has and is going to feature quite a few of is list is films off of Miran's Mar- top 300 list. So um, I was watching a hand, I watched quite a few of those, uh, kind of last minute in order to prepare for the episode I did with Kyle, wanting to have as best, best context, uh, for that in the statistics realm as I could. And so, you know, I was watching, after I finished Kyle's list, and between that and when we did the interview, or not interview, but like when we did that episode together, I watched as many of, um... Moran's uh, films as I could. So I believe there are one, two, three, four, four films from Moran on this top ten. Uh, and this is the first one, and that's Harold uh, and Maud. I watched this April 11th this month. Um, I feel like I got the... Oh, no. It's, I clocked it at 91 minutes long, so just an hour and a half. It's from 1971. Gave it an 82, it has an 86 on Rotten Tomatoes, and my summary, a young boy obsessed with death meets an old woman that also attends funerals in her spare time. Uh, meets an old woman. Uh, Harold and Maude, this is a film I had, you know, I've known about this film for quite some time. I don't know exactly why I never sought it out to watch it before this. Uh, you know, I'm a pretty decent fan of Hal Ashby, you know, I really liked The Last Detail, I really liked being there, Coming Home, I wasn't quite a fan of, but two out of three is is a pretty decent track record for a director, and Harold and Maude is his most popular film, at least on Letterboxd, and uh, I'm not sure. It features, you know, it it stars uh, Ruth Gordon, as Maud and Bud Court as Harold, I think they're fantastic uh, in the movie. They, it's such a strange dynamic, but they make it work so well. You know, this 80-year-old woman, uh, Ruth Gordon, and however old Bud Court's supposed to be, like in his late teens or so, 
and it just it's just it's really funny it's incredibly dark really funny the amount of times Harold pretends to kill himself are new <laughs> very very numerous and each one becomes a little bit more extravagant and absurd than the last to great effect to great great effect uh, it featured there's a scene where I was just floored I thought um, it's one of the I think it's one of the last if not the last times Harold fakes his death in front of somebody else um, and the person he fakes his death in front of uh, reacts differently than everyone else has before I loved that scene that was one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. And then the ending happens. And the ending is devastating. It's a very sad ending. It's not out of nowhere necessarily. But it's it's definitely disappointing. Because despite how short the film is. You get to that end. And you just don't want it to be over. <laughs> you, 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 you know that like given the circumstances. It's not a you're not in a place where things are going to just go on forever, obviously, but you expect and hope that they'll at least go on for some amount of time, and they just don't, and it's really frustrating, but that's kind of how it has to be, and, and it does kind of complete this whole circle of the film, which is you you end up starting out, you know, it's, it's more Harold's story than Maud's story, but you end up starting out trying to figure out, like, well, Harold is in this kind of weird place in his life where he doesn't really fit in with anyone, and he finds someone he fits in with, and it's Maud, and they get along famously, they are pretty great together, and by the end of the film, you're wondering, well, you know, is there anyone, uh, you know, can Harold kind of move on from this sort of place he's been in, in his for as long as he, we can, we know him anyway, and uh, there's a little bit of hope there, I think. I, I think he's he's coming around a bit by the end of the movie, and that's that's a good thing. It, it's a it's a an improvement, and it it definitely resolves itself in that sense. It, it gives you hope for Harold's future, and um, that's kind of all you can ask for. When you know, after have, having having seen the movie, that's about all you can ask for uh, by the end of it. So I really loved Harold and Maude. It, I thought it was really adorable, really funny, very dark, and um, very good. And I gave it an 82. It is my number seven in April, and uh, a great find off of Miran's top 300 list, if I do say so. Moving on to number six, the only film on the on this month's list that came out after 2000, uh, and came out this year. So this uh, this one I saw April 5th, 2018. It is clocked at 89 minutes. Um, I gave it an 84, and it has a 95%. Last time I looked at Rotten Tomatoes, with a summary: Creatures that hunt by sound plague a family living on a farm. And of course, that is A Quiet Place. I have talked about A Quiet Place already on the podcast, so I won't take too much time to talk about it anymore. Just to say, um, in the time since, so it's been almost a month since I saw the film. I haven't seen it a second time, but I, I would say that 
you know, I've I've listened and heard and, and spoken to and um, read a lot of things about the film, uh, positive and negative, and critiques and 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 supports and things like that. And there are a lot of convincing cases for like the problems that the film has, and equally as many convincing cases for like the strengths of the film. And so ultimately, I don't think I don't think I've overrated the film. I think it is a great horror movie. Um, it's simple, it's straightforward, and uh, one of the most, and, and the thing that I, I kind of connect with the most is uh, I saw a quote from Krasinski who said that it, the film is about the difference between surviving and thriving, and that, I, I 100% came away with that message after watching it. I think that is a perfect way to summarize this film, because there are choices made uh, that are really seem on the surface to be very stupid. And I kind of talked about this in the review. Like, it's one thing to just be, like, like surviving and thriving. It's one thing to be able to stay alive in under these circumstances, but it's another to, like, have kids and, and pass that on and be able to make sure that the human race doesn't just die out because you can't have babies. Like... You've got to figure that out, and they tried, and what happened happened. So it's it's not as simple as you just just can't have kids, you know. And that's why, in my opinion, I think it's so pivotal that so much time has passed during the film. You know, over a year has passed since the things appeared, these these monsters, these creatures, and you get to this point where you're like, well, I, I, we're kind of getting desperate here, you know, and uh, I still, I, I also, I agree with a lot of people, like, I think the whiteboard is silly, um, if they really had to have that whiteboard in there, like, maybe make it seem like he hasn't touched it in a year or so, like, it's covered in dust or something, just something like, oh, he did this, like, the first week, and kind of just kind of, and nothing new has come up or something, and I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I I still really enjoy A Quiet Place, and uh, I am perfectly content and happy with exactly where it is on the list as my number six. Six, yes. So, A Quiet Place, I give it an 84, and uh, number six, A Quiet Place. Number five, the top five in April. Now, this is also a, a film on Moran's top list. Uh, it is a foreign language Oscar winner from 1973. I saw it April 8th last month. Um, clocked it about 115 minutes, just shy of two hours. I also rated this an 84, but it does have a slightly better Rotten Tomatoes score than A Quiet Place with a 100 perfect score. And uh, my summary, just about nothing goes right on a movie set. And the film in question is Day for Night. Day for Night. This is directed by Francois Truffaut, <clears throat> who you may know from having directed The 400 Blows and many other um, generally considered to be classic films in his resume. It stars Jacqueline Bessette, Jean-Pierre Lioud, Jean-Pierre Amont, Valentina Cortez, Dani, Alexandra Stewart, Truffaut himself, Jean Champion, 
Champion, Champion uh, David Markham, Nike Arigi, a lot of people, I don't know, other people, Graham Green, but not the same Graham Green that I'm familiar with. All that kind of talk about, like, this is a film totally and completely about movies. It is, uh, it's kind of a master class in, in, um, filmmaking and, and, you know, there's just, there's not a lot I can say about this. Uh, you know, it's not super heavy on plot. It's not super heavy on like real character introspection. It's mostly just trying to present what life behind the camera is making a movie. And it does so in a fascinating, oftentimes funny, oftentimes, uh, 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 just, just meaningful and engaging ways. It's, it's not overly dramatic. It's not overly heavy most of the time, but it's just, it's presented in such a just beautiful and light and airy way. It's not terribly serious, uh, and it's, it's ultimately just kind of this perfect little satirical appropriation of, of filmmaking and I, I love it for all of those reasons I, I think uh, you know it, it's it's really fascinating to watch and you get the sense that like what what's what's really fascinating and one of the more interesting elements is like half of what's happening in this film in day for night uh, which is supposedly all quote unquote you know behind the scenes of a making a movie is that you know, it, a lot of it is not even, like, pertaining to the film or the creation of the film. Like, so much of it doesn't even have to do with, you know, the acting, the, sh the filming, the costuming, and all that kind of stuff. It's just kind of sitting there. And, like, extracurricular stuff and, like, romantic entanglements and, you know, problems with this person or that person and, like, budgets and all that sort of stuff. You know, there's a lot of things going on here that you really don't consider happen behind the scenes. And I think uh, they, they only serve to make the completion of filming the movie that much more difficult. Um, you know, Truffaut plays the director within the film that he's directing. And it's just, it's, it's a layer upon a layer, a thing within a thing, an inception, you know, it's, it's exhibit, it's, you know, it's, it's all that kind of stuff. So... I really enjoyed it. I think, uh, you know, I wish one one of the things would have been interesting is having if I could have. I also watched uh, the director and the Jedi this month, which I liked, but it's not anywhere near like my top ten for the month. I would have loved to have watched these two films like far cl more cl like back to back. Um, as it stood, it ended, they ended up being like two and a half weeks up separate from me in the month. But if I could have seen them really close together, it would have been really interesting to kind of compare the fictionalized version and Truffaut's version of, like, all these things that happened behind the scenes in Day for Night with basically the real version of that for The Last Jedi. And I think that would have been a fascinating comparison to make. So my number five for this month is Day for Night. As I mentioned, it won the Academy Award Foreign Language Oscar that year as well at... Oh, 
Well, it won the foreign language Oscar in 73, and then in 74, it was nominated. Truffaut was nominated for director, got a supporting actress nomination, and an original screenplay nomination. So, yeah, Day for Night, number five in April. Number four is another film off of Moran's top movie list. Uh, this one comes out came out in 1943. I saw it April 10th. Uh, clocked it at 75 minutes, so very brisk, very short film. I gave it an 85, and it has a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes with a summary. Three men are set to be set to hang for a crime they say they didn't commit. Uh, and that film is The Oxbow Incident, directed by William A. Wellman, who is the director of the first-ever Best Picture winner, Wings, um, and... I've also also seen that he's directed uh, Viva Villa, uh, Viva Via, Via, and uh, Nothing Sacred. Um, Oxbow Incident, honestly, is the only film of his that I've seen that I've really liked. Everything else is fine to meh. But the Oxbow Incident is pretty great. Uh, so it's a western. Um, it stars Henry Fonda, Dana Andrews, Mary Beth Hughes, Anthony Quinn, Jane Darwell, Frank Conroy. Harry Morgan, Mark Lawrence, William Ith, a lot of great people in this movie. And it's a very straightforward plot. So the plot is, um, you know, these guys are, the, this this town is on the lookout for these cattle rustlers. They first assume that it's, uh, I believe, Henry Fonda's character and, uh, I don't know who plays the other guy. Why won't you? T- uh, and Harry Morgan's character, but it's not them. They're just kind of in, the, in this town, sort of happenstance almost. And they eventually join this the posse that are out to figure out who are the cattle rustlers, um, which they ultimately re- think or realize that they probably are also the ones responsible for uh, a recent shooting, slash death, and and murder that took place. So the movie. We find these guys who have the missing cattle, and uh, the plot is basically the posse wants to hang them for what happened, and the guys who they're trying to hang keep telling them, look, we didn't do it, like, this wasn't us stealing cattle, we didn't kill anybody, we bought the cattle, etc., 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 and so as the film, this happens very early on in the film, but as the film progresses, new information comes to light that either further incriminates or further um, alleviates the the uh, activities that are happening and, and tries to bring to light the truth of the matter. And there are some people who are set in their opinions that like, no, it had to be them, hang them right now. Other people are swayed back and forth as each new piece of evidence is com- comes out. And uh, you ultimately just kind of follow that and then you know they make they eventually are forced to kind of make a decision about what to do and that's it that's i I can't really say anymore without really giving away the the end ending and so the plot is fairly straightforward but what's really happening in this movie is uh you know you're you're looking at basically a mob mentality and the way that it's almost impossible to kind of sway their opinion 
It's a very emotional movie. It's incredibly raw. And you end up trying, you know, you're, as a, as a viewer, you're trying to determine from, for yourself, you know, what the truth is, is and, and who's to blame and what should be done. And it's not an easy decision to make. Um, the further into the movie we get, the more difficult that decision becomes. And, you know, you have to make sure, like, either way you'd end up, you know, whether they get, whether you want to decide you want to hang them or not, if you're wrong in either situation, you know, you could be either letting killers go to kill again, to steal more cattle, or uh, you're killing innocent men yourself. And so that's a very tough decision and and you 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 can either err on the side of caution you can err on but like you can err on the side of caution and still go either way so wellman is crafts this film brilliantly enough to the point where um i think for me watching it i had a pretty strong idea of what the truth was uh fairly early on i wouldn't say from the beginning but fairly early on and I I never exactly never quite swayed away from that thought, but it's it's his his direction and and the script and just the care and the performances are strong enough in my opinion that uh, while I knew or I thought I knew what the truth was at least uh, you you definitely get the sense that the characters at, at play and the ones basically in control here. Um, they're convincing enough that they might, that the th- that what you think might still not be the right thing, right? So, even though I thought I knew what was going on, I was convinced enough by the performances, by the film, that they could know better than me, in a sense. And uh, that was the, that was brilliant. You know, Henry Fonda. I wouldn't say there's really a main character in this movie. Because there's long periods of time where Fonda isn't really doing a lot, and he's just kind of standing back and listening. But that's kind of the movie, is just kind of standing back and listening. There's not a lot of action. It's it's a lot of just talking and, and dis- deciphering and, and figuring things out. And I really, really enjoyed it. It's a great film. Um, a pretty unique Western, at least in my limited experience, and one I would definitely recommend. So number four for this month... The Oxbow Incident, with an 85. Good one. Really good one. Number three in April. Uh, and I kind of talked about this already, but I can go into a little bit more detail now about it. Um, this is a Best Picture winner, the last one I had to see. I saw this April 22nd, uh, and uh, it's one. It's two hours and 50 minutes long, so 169 minutes. Very, very long movie. It came out in 1946. Best Picture from 1946. I gave it an 86, and uh, the Rotten Tomato score currently sits at 96. My summary, three World War II veterans return home changed. And that's the best years of our lives. Uh, directed by William Wyler. Starring Frederick March, Myrna, Lo- Myrna Loy, Dana Andrews, again, Harold Russell, Teresa Wright, Virginia Mayo, Catherine O'Donnell, Hoagie, Carmichael, Gladys George, Roman Bonin, Ray Collins, Minigo Gomble, and others. Uh, William Wyler has become one of my favorite directors. I've seen 14 of his films now. Uh, His other movies that I've really enjoyed, Ben-Hur, Roman Holiday, How to Steal a Million, The Letter, The Heiress, Wuthering Heights, Mrs. Miniver, 
The Children's Hour, Funny Girl, uh, a lot of great films coming out of Weiler. And uh, he, he is a three-time Best Director winner, I believe, if not more. At least three times. He's been nominated at least ten times in the 14 films I've seen. And uh, Best Years of Our Lives, the last Best Picture winner I had to see. And it's a very... It's a pretty slow movie. So it's really long. It doesn't move very quickly. And it deals with three separate plot uh, lines uh, as we follow these different World War II veterans coming home, either with PTSD or uh, hand physical handicaps or uh, some some change has, has overtaken them that has made them less compatible with society. And all that kind of builds up to... Uh, them struggling with the people they know, the the family they had, uh, the romantic relationships they built. All of these things are become strained or can fall apart completely, or you know, or, or you know become resentful for one or two of the people involved in them. It's just you you really see the sort of deterioration of the after effects of going to war and. You know, it's, it's, you know, American Sniper tried to basically do this with one person a couple of years ago. You have, like, Thank You for Your Service that came out last year that approaches the subject. This is not a new topic uh, in film, although it was probably fairly new back then. And this is one of the best versions of it. Uh, it's, it's really difficult um, to watch at points. You know, you've got a guy who's lost both of his hands. Uh, or not, is it both or one hand? Um, yeah, both hands. And he is really, really in a state. And, you know, you get this, there's this brilliant moment where, like, his dad, I think it is, like, is just doing something and then all of a sudden realizes that he has hands and his son doesn't. And suddenly he's ashamed. And, and like... I, I totally understand that feeling, you know, you, you think like, man, I mean, just thinking of like people in the world now that like don't have anything or, or don't have food, can't put food on their plate, can't, don't have money, don't have a job, all these things. And like, you think like, man, like I have something and they don't. And like, that's upsetting. And you wish that everyone could have the benefits and, and the uh, you wish that everyone could have the things that you have at least, if not better. And they just can't. But, and and so for that to like, to translate that into like your own kid though, someone that close to you and your hands are that thing. And for that, that's something so human, right? That's something so personal to each person. And... You, you look at your hands, like you use them every day. You can't really, if you have hands, you can't really get out of bed without at least using your hands to like leverage yourself, right? Like it, it's, 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 it's something so, they're so important to everyone's kind of way of life. Like you couldn't use a computer the same way. You know, you can't move a mouse. You can't use a phone. You can't cook for like all of a sudden your entire world becomes almost impossible to live in and so 
at the same time, though, if you're on the other side of that, it's really frustrating because you don't want everyone to feel sorry for you. You don't want everyone to be uh, constantly thinking about their hands and, 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 you know, just kind of drawing attention to it more and more and more. Like, that sucks, and that's uh, that just kind of brings everyone down. It's, it's, it's an understandable reaction, but it's not a pleasant one at ever, any point, and it's not one that furthers uh, the conversation. You know, it's not something that's, like, going to improve the, the relationship between those people. You know, his dad is not going to all of a sudden just be okay with things. It That's not how it works. And, you know, I've been on... I, you know, I think everyone has kind of been on both sides of that circumstance where, you know, like even if something as simple as like in, in elementary school, you get a test back and your best friend did amazing on the test and you didn't, you, you might've done really badly on this test and they're gushing about it. They're going on about it, like best grade they've ever gotten in this class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they see the like D on the top of your test and you like kind of, and then they kind of get all sheepish about it. And they kind of like sit back in the chair more. And they don't talk about it anymore. And they like kind of get upset that they even bolstered about how good their score was. Because they realize, oh shit, like you didn't do as well as me. I'm sorry, that was kind of a... It's kind of being a dick there. And, and so you, you... But like, they feel bad, but then you... And, like, for a moment, you kind of appreciate their sort of respect for, like, how you did on the test. But then, as as soon as that passes, at least for me, anyway, all of a sudden you're like, well, well, now I'm, like, bringing down their happiness. Now, like, they can't even appreciate this thing that they achieved. They can't, and, and even if it's not something that's achievement, like, hands, like, they can't even appreciate this thing that they have the same way because I'm here. It's me. I'm the reason. And that's tough. That is a very, very difficult thing to do. And, like, this movie does, just creates that in, like, the span of a minute. It's, like, a very short scene. It's not long. It's it's barely even addressed. And and that, the whole movie isn't quite as, as poignant as that moment. But most of it is, is very strong and very relevant and very... Um, worth seeing and, and experiencing. So I'm a big fan of the best years of our lives. It was a f- fantastic last best picture winner to see for me. And um, a worthy winner overall. Uh, you know, like I said in um, the uh, the episode I did for all the best picture winners, not my favorite <laughs> um, film from that year. Not my favorite Best Picture winner, but it is a worthy winner all the same. So that's number three, the best years of our lives. Number two. Uh, this is a film I saw April 4th last month. Uh, clocked it at 96 minutes, a little over an hour and a half. It's from 1950, directed by John Cromwell. Um, also directed... Uh, of Human Bondage, with starring Betty Davis, the only other film of his I've seen. And uh, this film, summary, a teenage newlywed is sent to prison as an accessory to robbery. I gave it an 89, so almost 90, very close. I gave it an 89, 
has a negative one on Rotten Tomatoes or no score. That's how I symbolize no score. And the film is called Caged. It stars Eleanor Parker, Agnes Moorhead, Ellen Corby, Hope Emerson, Betty Gard, Jan Sterling, Lee Patrick, Olive Deering, Jane Darwell again, Gertrude Michael, and many others. Pretty much an all-female cast, uh, directed by a guy, but, you know, that's that's the 50s. And so, basically, Eleanor Parker as Marie Allen, she... Um, sent to prison for a very innocent, innocuous crime, and ends up spending a lot of time there, and uh, really kind of gets into things. It's basically Orange is the New Black, but from the 50s. Uh, the performances, especially Eleanor Parker, I'm a huge fan of, of her performance in this. Uh, this is one of the few films I've seen her in. She is great in it. Uh, the film... Make does a great job of like basically if you've watched Orange is the New Black, Piper kind of just goes from fish out of water to like shark in a pond basically. At least and I I haven't even seen like I think the most recent season, so it's it's a pretty engaging story of this woman who grows and uh, sort of adapts to her surroundings with it while in prison. Caged uh, is basically that story, but in a movie instead of a TV show. And it's it's really quite impressive, uh, especially for its time, I think. You know, it, it's very anti-man a lot of the times, and uh, there's a lot of, I don't know, a, a lot of just really interesting dynamics that develop throughout the film between the women, between the guards and the prisoners, between the prisoners themselves. Uh, at one point, a cat wanders into the prison, just wanders in, um, which just is its own just hor horrific scene in and of itself. And you kind of see Eleanor sort of go from being this pleasant and sort of indignant girl who's kind of just upset that she's there and sad that, it, that everything is happening around her to someone who takes charge and takes a, a look at herself and her life and just decides, you know, this is, I got to roll with this. I got to, I got to steer into the skid almost. I, I have to adjust and accommodate things. And there are a lot of, you know, there are hand, a couple of other big things that happen in the movie uh, that kind of help her along this way. And uh, I won't give those away, but man, this is this is a tough one. This is a really hard movie. Uh, it's 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 kind of sets the stage for a lot of films to come after it, and does so in a pretty spectacular fashion. I'm a big fan of Caged. Uh, my number two in April with an 89, and. Uh, a, a great one. A great one. Very, very impressed by Caged. But it is not my number one. My number one is another film that was on Moran's top 300 movie list. Um, and it is now on my top 300 movie list. Uh, it is a film I actually, like, I talked about it with Declan on his episode. Um, it was on a list 
that he did for one of his um one of his tasks for his scavenger hunt and uh we even like specifically called out this movie and uh, so the poster title for the film is fucking a mall i saw this april 11th uh it's about 83 minutes long it's from 1998 and my summary is two teenage girls struggle with their homosexuality i gave it a 95 it has a 90 percent on rotten tomatoes but its original title is fucking a mall uh, its English title, translated title, revised title, whatever you want to call it, is Show Me Love. And it's a very tiny film. Uh, looks like it was shot on like a shoestring budget. It's directed by Lucas Moodyson, whose other film that I've seen that he's directed is We Are the Best, which I also really like. Um, we Are the Best came out in 2013 uh, from... And that's about three girls in Stockholm who create a punk band. Uh, This is uh, a film about a young girl who is uh, discovering... And and she... Two girls, really. One kind of knows that she's, um, if not a lesbian, at least attracted to women... And, you know, it's she's going to have a birthday party. No one's going to show up because she doesn't really have any friends. She gets teased a lot at school. But she's absolutely in love and infatuated with the second girl. The second girl is a bit of a floozy, at least as presented in the film. She kind of just sleeps with a lot of guys. and not That's the reputation she has. But truth be told, she's never actually slept with anybody. And... Through uh, happenstance and circumstances, she ends up at um, Agnes's birthday party. And it's kind of, it becomes this sort of cruel game that ultimately turns into this sort of sweet relationship that develops, but then more complications arise. And it's just a really heartfelt depiction of sort of a young girl and... Uh, her homosexuality and, and two of them kind of discovering how they who they are and what's going on and, and um, how to kind of not only navigate their own lives but each other's lives and their feelings for each other and their feelings in con- in context with the rest of the school that they attend and it, it really juxtaposes that that sort of age old thing of you know how do you be happy with who you are and what you do and what you like and how you're portraying yourself and all that kind of stuff with being happy with how everyone else sees you. And a lot of the, and, and so like to that extent, you know, you end up with this sort of, this trope of, you know, like, oh, we can't be together because, uh, you know, I'm popular and you're not. Like that's, I've seen that, we've seen that tons of movies all the time. It's not new. This film has that aspect to it, but it's still beautifully crafted. It's it's beautifully acted. It's it just everything about it just flows so smoothly from one moment to the next, and you can't help but kind of fall in love with both girls and like their circumstances and and just them as a couple and then them as individuals and it's it's all just so nice and. <laughs> There's there's awful bad stuff that happens. <clears throat> Excuse me, bad stuff that happens as well. 
It's not all roses and sunshine, because very few movies can be. But ultimately, it is a feel-good, feel-good movie, and a very fantastic sort of coming-of-age movie for girls. And has a fantastic... I love the scene that takes place uh, in the closet, fittingly. Or I guess it's more technically a bathroom, but, you know, analogous to a closet and coming out of the closet. Uh, It stars... The two leads are Alexandra Dahlstrom and Rebecca Liljeberg. Liljeberg. Who... um, Really haven't done much else besides this. But this is worth it. This is such a good movie. I'm a huge fan. Totally, totally worth seeing. And uh, it's my favorite movie from this month. It, my, it's, it enters my top 300. Um, and I will tell you where. It, come, it's, it enters at number... Oh, there it is. Okay. It's number 135 on my top 300. Uh, so it enters just between... Statistically, Rocky and Kung Fu Hustle. So, big fan of Show Me Love slash Fucking Them All. And uh, that's my number one. So, my top ten, to run down them real quick. Rhapsody Rabbit, Drop Dead Gorgeous, Stray Dog, Harold and Maude, A Quiet Place, Day for Night, The Oxbow Incident, The Best Years of Our Lives, Caged, and Show Me Love. Really strong top ten. Um, you compare that to March, and uh, while March had a higher, better top end than than April, March also had a weaker low end. So, pretty good, pretty good month, all things told. And uh, looking forward to May. Um, yeah, I still haven't seen Infinity War. We'll see if that finds its way onto my top ten. I, I mean, I'll have talked about it quite a bit by that point, so we probably won't say much if it does. Um, but Infinity War, uh, other movies coming out this month, like Deadpool and Solo. But um, the top 10 May movies lit episode will probably be delayed a little bit into May, June. That was silly. Uh, into June more than this one, as... Uh, I will be in Brazil for part of, for the start of June, for about a week or so, so about, yeah, till the middle of the first full week of June, so that's exciting, this was great, loved this, great top 10, um, two movies that that would technically be in the top 10, except that they were rewatches, uh, Sita Sings the Blues, which is one of my absolute all-time favorite movies, it's in my top 10, statistically, uh, as well as This Land is Mine, which is a short animated film on YouTube that's basically just like a song. Both of those, big fans of them, and uh, but I'd seen them before, so they did not make this list. Uh, that's it. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Uh, really appreciate it, and um, ex- looking forward to next month. Uh, if you want to write in the show, want to tell me the top 10 movies you saw in April or any month, uh, you can email me, circleoffilm at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at circleoffilm. 
um, you can go to the website circlefilm.com to find all the old episodes um, or pretty much anywhere where uh, podcasts can be found you can support the show at patreon.com slash circle of film um, you can also support the show by rating it on whatever podcast listening to, uh, program you use leaving a review if you feel so inclined um, but that's it thank you so much once more and as always have a week so She'll never leave me Even as she fades from view So long, farewell I'll be to say adieu In the name of love One night in the name of love So long, farewell Oh, what I'll be to say Wait a minute Wait a minute Wait a minute So long